Thank you for listening to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. We pray that as you listen to the following message, that it will encourage you to continue to connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and with others. If you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to the book of James, chapter 3. James, chapter 3. We'll begin reading with verse 13 of James chapter 3 and then read right into chapter 4. God is always concerned with what we do, with what we think, with what we say. But He's even more concerned with our attitudes because our attitudes determine often the tone of our voices the content of what we say, the things that we think, and the actions that we carry out. Attitude comes from an ancient Greek word that means to fasten. An attitude is something that fastens to your mind and influences everything about who we are and how we relate to our environment. So we're talking about attitude. I've given the hashtag, we want to be. We're in a series called, we want to be. This is the fourth sermon in this series. We've talked about, we want to be friendly. We've talked about, we want to be positive. There's too much negative in this world. If ever there ought to be a place where people are positive, it ought to be right here. We ought to be merciful. There's not a person on the planet who doesn't need a little mercy, a little hope. Today, I want us to look at, we want to be humble. We want to be humble. James, the writer of the book of James, may very well have been the half-brother of Jesus. If that is the case, he was also uh, the pastor of the first church in Jerusalem for a time, uh, a very well-respected leader. And if you look at the whole book of James, five chapters, it reads a lot like Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So brothers kind of begat, the attitude of one brother seems to be uh, perpetrated into the uh, attitude of another. Verse 13, James says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show by their good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Chapter 4, verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives 
that you may spend what you get on your pleasures, you adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. In the 1600s, there was an English Presbyterian minister by the name of John Flavel. Flavel once said this, he says, They that know God will be humble, and they that know themselves cannot be proud. The great theologian Ted Turner, y'all know him, don't you? Ted Turner once said this, he says, If only I had a little humility, I'd be perfect, he said. I read about a young person who was applying for a job and was called in for an interview. And the employer who was interviewing the uh, young man held up a very glowing reference letter uh, for this person. And he he complimented uh, this young applicant on the letter of reference. He said, man, I'm telling you, he said, "This, this letter of reference right here is the best I've ever seen. You obviously are the candidate we need. And with modesty, the young applicant said, well, I'm, I'm glad you liked it. I wrote it myself. <laughs> Humility means to have a modest opinion or estimate of one's own importance or rank. The opposite of humility is pride. Now, there is good pride. We are proud of our children when they do some great things. We're proud of Emma and Ava uh, for uh, being baptized this morning. We're we're proud of our church. But there is is an evil pride, and, and many times even good pride can slip slide downwardly into evil pride. And evil pride becomes... A a selfish, ambition-centered pride that compares ourselves with other people. And usually we look for people that we know are not going to add up to us so that it makes it easier for us to seek pride in ourselves. The Bible through and through shows the, the tragic consequences of sinful pride. And yet it shows for us uh, the way God lifts up the humble, and lifts them up in in his eyes. Someone defined humility as that one grace that when you know that you have it, you have right then lost it. It has been also said, true humility is not thinking meanly of oneself. It is simply not thinking of oneself at all. Humility. And yet it's so hard... It's so hard to cultivate. It's so hard to develop. We are, by nature, a prideful people. 
I don't care what continent we're on. It, it doesn't matter. Just there's a human nature in us. There's, an, there's a fleshly side of us, a sinful nature that cries out for pride. We want to look good. We want people to think highly of us. And we want them to think as highly of ourselves as we think of ourselves. And so easy it is to become prideful. I have shared with you before C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters, one of my favorite books, where a, a demon mentor is trying to train a, a, a little demon apprentice. And he sends him out to this one particular family who, who is a Christian family, and he's trying to get them to do wrong things. And, and he tries one thing and fails, and he tries another thing and he fails, so he tries a third thing, still fails. He comes back, and he's complaining to his uh, teacher Everything I've tried to get them to do wrong, they have refused to do it. And so the demon mentor said, well, go back one more time. And this time, make them proud that they have refused to submit to evil. And he did, and that time it worked. Because even the most righteous of people can easily succumb to pride. And pride usually is, is uh, the source of conflict, whether it's between people or families, Hatfields, McCoys, or if it's between nations. If you've been to South America, you know that uh, high in the Andes Mountains on the border between Argentina and Chile, there is a huge statue of Christ. It's called Christ of the Andes. And it was erected to symbolize a pledge between the two countries, Argentina and Chile. They had been at war and fighting for so, for so long, and, and finally the leaders of those two countries came together and they erected this statue to, to, to be a symbol of, from now on, this statue will be a symbol of the peace that is between our two countries. But it had not been up there six months when one of the countries got angry. The folks from Chile became angry. You know why? You know why they became angry? Because the statue of Jesus was facing Argentina. His back was to Chile. And they complained. And they started uh, uh, some friction between those two countries. And, and you know how it was settled? There was a journalist in Chile, a, a, a journalist in Chile, who said, look, to, his, to their leader, said, look, you don't need to worry about the Christ statue facing toward Argentina. Those folks need Jesus watching over them a whole lot worse than we do. And that settled the issue. It's so easy for pride to result in conflict. And James, writing to uh, a group of churches, we don't know the exact recipients of James's uh, letter, the letter of James, but we know that he's trying to get them to practice genuine Christ fellowship. It's one thing to say we're Christians. It's another thing to act like Christians. And one of the things that Satan has gotten us to do in these days is he's gotten us to believe that there's a certain type of Christianity that is the right way when really that type of Christianity that so many people are following today looks nothing like Jesus at all. It's very militant. It's militant in ideology in some parts of the globe. It's militant in its, uh, in its military philosophy. And yet there was nothing about it that is anything 
that has to do with Jesus. Let me tell you some things that James tells us about conflict, pride, and humility. First of all, he tells us that the cause of conflict is selfishness. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You see, pride comes from a selfishness that doesn't start out there in them. It starts in here, in me, in there, in you. Pride is something that that rears its ugly head within us, and, and Satan makes us think that it is a positive development, when indeed it is a bad development. He says in verse 2, you desire, but you don't have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have, because you do not ask God, and when you do ask, you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend it on your selfish pleasures. The cause of conflict is selfishness. Second, the characteristics of conflict are laid out by James. He says the characteristics are these. Bitterness, envy, backbiting, quarreling, selfish ambition, and separation. How I wish, folks, that I could stand up here and say all of these things characterize the folks that are outside the church. How I'd love to say that. How I wish I could say that. Unfortunately, I can't say that. I was with my dad as he pastored seven or eight different churches. And then after we parted our ways and I went to pastor Bethlehem Baptist Church and he went on to pastor another church. I've pastored three churches. He's pastored about two or three churches since then. We have yet to pastor a church. I talked with dad about it. Neither one of us have ever pastored a church where we didn't have these things in the church. I said, Dad, you have anybody who's quarreling in your church? He said, yeah. I said, I got that same family here. (laughs) What's their name? Oh, I don't know. The cause of conflict is selfishness. And the results, the characteristics of conflict are bitterness, envy, backbiting, quarreling, selfish ambition, separation. Verse 14 says, but if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it. Do not deny the truth. This kind of wisdom, quote unquote, does not come down from heaven. It's earthly. It's unspiritual. It's demonic. The third thing that James tells us and that is really the focus of this message is that the cure for conflict is humility. The cure for conflict is is humidity, humility. And James gives us four steps in incorporating humility into our lives, into our families, and into our churches. The first thing he says is recognize that the problem is not over there and it's not in them, it's in you. I mean, it doesn't matter what a person's problem is. You and I both know that the first step in in dealing with any problem is to recognize the part of it that I play, that you play in the whole conflict. James says this again. He says, he says, the fights and quarrels among you, don't they come from desires that battle within you? They're in you, he says. Don't look out there and point fingers at somebody else. The, The problem is within you. Second, he says, resolve to change your direction. 
James urges that we change our direction, that we let loose of the sinful pride that that compels us to do wrong and that we in turn humble ourselves before the Lord and we go in His direction. In the New Testament and in the Old Testament, the, the classic term for that is to repent. Repent. It literally means you're walking in one direction and repent says you stop, realize you're in the wrong direction and you turn and go into an opposite direction. That's what repent is. A simple change of mind and heart that results in a change of direction. So he says, recognize that the problem is in you. Resolve to change your direction. And then he says, number three, submit to God. Give in to God. Give God the sway in your life. Verse seven, submit yourselves then to God. Who else is there to submit to? And then number four, he says, and resist the devil. Again, verse seven, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. I cannot exaggerate the problem of pride. Our Catholic brothers and sisters recognized that and put it into print a long time ago when they, when they tried to identify what they call the seven deadly sins. And the deadliest one of all was the sin of pride because they said that that sin of pride led to all the other six. The sin of pride. Recognize the problem is in you. Resolve to change direction. Submit to God and resist the devil. You've got to run from him. Everybody in this building has certain temptations that we face. Your temptation is not going to be mine. Mine is not going to be yours. But whatever that temptation is, Satan knows very well how to push the right buttons to get you to give in to that temptation. And let me tell you, at the first sign of that temptation, here's what you have to do. You have to do it. Run like everything. Turn around and run. Flee the devil. James is urgent here. Do you see the verb? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. He's not talking about tinkering with him. Well, you can tinker with him a little bit and then tiptoe away. No, that's not what he says. Recognize him for who he is, the devil, and then run from him. Flee from him. Humility. God loves humility. The writer of Proverbs says said that, that there are a few things that God hates. Can you imagine God hating something? There are a few things he hates. And one of the things that the writer of Proverbs lists in the hates of God is a proud look. A proud look. When King Solomon asked God for wisdom, one of the things that God said to him in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, he says, Solomon, if my people who are called by my name, shall, here it is, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. A century ago, George Washington Carver, the scientist who developed hundreds of useful products from peanuts, said this. He says, when I was young... I said to God, God, tell me the mystery of the universe. But God answered, that knowledge is reserved for me alone. So I said, God, tell me the mystery of the peanut. And then God said, well, George, that's more nearly your size. And he gave it to him. Genuine humility. I want you to get this, folks. 
Genuine humility, not false humility. We see enough of that, especially in political periods of time. We see enough false humility. I'm talking about real humility. People who, who honestly evaluate who they are. They know who they are in the sight of God. And, and they, they come before you and there's no, there's no facade in them. Genuine humility is appealing to most people. Arrogance, on the other hand, is repulsive to most, if not all people. I don't know how you feel. I can guess you feel the same way. I just don't like being around arrogant people. But I genuinely enjoy being around authentic, humble people. And church is a place where people should be humble. One of my favorite historical figures is Winston Churchill. Churchill was once asked, doesn't it thrill you to know that every time you make a speech, the hall is packed to overflowing? It's quite flattering, Sir Winston said. But whenever I feel that way, I also remember that if I, instead of making a political speech, were being hanged, the crowd would be twice as big. That's pretty good thought. Humility. We want to be friendly. We want to be positive. We want to be merciful. And we want to be humble. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, when you were here, you described yourself as meek and lowly. And you said that those who are meek and lowly will find rest in your presence. Lord, we realize that you put a premium upon humility. Not false modesty, but genuine evaluation of ourselves. In the face of a holy and just and gracious and loving and merciful God. We don't ask you to humble us, Lord. But we do ask you to remind us that we need to humble ourselves. And humbling ourselves is something that we can only do by your grace. Let us never forget who you are. Let us never forget what we are. And surely, in the face of that contrast, we will humble ourselves. Lord, I pray for those who are here today who may have never had a time in their lives like Emma and Ava where they they asked the Lord Jesus to come into their lives. To begin that journey, that relationship with you. Lord, no matter how young we receive you or how old we are when we receive you, the important thing is that before we leave this walk of life, we better receive you as Savior and Lord. It makes all the difference, not only in this world, but in the next. So, Lord, I pray that someone would come to know Christ in this service right now in this invitation. I pray for those who need to make some decision in their lives beyond the decision to receive you as their Savior. Lord, I pray that this would be an invitation that will be remembered for life change. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.